Well, I'm sure you've all heard the expression of biting off more than you can chew. And I'm sure you've done it a few times as well. Interestingly, that expression came from the 1800s in America, back when people usually still chewed tobacco, and they would literally bite off more than they could chew. But today, of course, it means getting yourself into more than you can handle. And I'm sure you've done that as well. And imagine you've never been skiing before, but you really want to give it a try. So you head to the mountain, you wrench your gear, you jump on the slope or on the lift, but you don't really know what you're doing, and you get on the wrong lift, and you were going for the bunny slopes, but now you're faced with the double black diamond. And that's called biting off more than you can chew. And you'll probably make it down the mountain, but it will probably hurt. Or maybe you're a car person, and you've got this old hot rod with dreams of restoring it, and so you begin with the engine, and in your garage, you're just enthusiastically taking apart everything under the hood. And there are hundreds of parts strewn about your garage. And you get the whole thing disassembled. And then you realize you don't know how to put it back together. And as likewise, biting off more than you can chew. And now you can be in real trouble. So I trust you get the idea. And this morning from the Gospel of Mark, I think we have maybe one of the greatest examples or illustrations of, of what it looks like to bite off more than you can chew. To take on way more than you can handle. And you may remember this story. It's a familiar story. James and John, the two hot-headed brothers, they approach Jesus alone, and they have this special request for him. And they, they request, almost a man, to sit on his right hand and left hand when he comes in his kingdom. In other words, they want to be on top. Of course, Jesus, he's number one. They get that. But they want to be number two. They want to be number three. They, they want it all. They want to reign and rule over everyone else. And it's such a bold request. And little do they know, however, that this request was way out of their league. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. So Jesus basically says back to them, you, you, you don't have any idea what you're getting into. You don't even know what you're asking, because if you did, you wouldn't ask. You see, there's a cost associated with this glory. By God's design, a cost that even the incarnate Jesus had to pay. The price of this glory is suffering. And the cross must come before the crown. Even for Jesus, before he could sit down on his throne as the glorified Savior of the world, he had to suffer the wrath of God on behalf of countless sinners. So James and John, you you guys want to share in that glory? You want to share Christ's throne, so to speak? Are you prepared to suffer with him? Are you prepared to suffer like him? And the answer to that is... No, you're not. I don't don't think so. They were in way over their heads, only they they didn't know it. They wanted to take this massive bite out of the kingdom and and keep it all for themselves, even stepping on the necks of the other disciples to get it. But if Jesus actually allowed them, they would have just choked and died. This is way more than they could handle. And thankfully, Jesus graciously spared them from getting what they thought they wanted. Sometimes God shows us his grace by saying no to our dumb requests. James and John, they would come to know suffering, but Jesus wouldn't let them bite off more than they could chew. So that's that's a story. Stories like this in the gospel, though, they're so instructive and so important. Because, you know, we often see the disciples, they fumble around, they get things wrong. They're sinners, too. And so sometimes they display the wrong motives or the wrong actions. But these incidents are not recorded for us to sit here and just point the finger at the twelve. These are here for us to sit and point the finger at ourselves. 
Because in reality, we're, we're not that different from James, John, the other disciples. And whenever we see the disciples mess up, say something dumb, bite off more than they can chew, we're not meant to point the finger. We're meant to pay extra close attention because this is really directed at, at us now. This is telling us something about our discipleship today. And with that in mind, I want us to take a, a much closer look at this passage in, in Mark chapter 10 and what it has to offer. So if you haven't already, grab your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, so it's been a, a couple of weeks that we've uh, since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to really quick you get you back up to speed and just ask, well, where are we in Mark's Gospel? Well, we're, we're getting very close to the end. There's several chapters left, but we're talking about the last weeks of Christ's life. In fact, if you, if you get to Mark chapter 11, the very beginning, that is his entrance into Jerusalem signaling the final week of his life. So we're close. We were getting very close to the end of his ministry and his life. Jesus has had Jerusalem as his final destination for many months now. He left Galilee behind, his hometown region to the north, and he's slowly but surely been making his way down to Jerusalem, the end of the line, where he knows that he will die. Right now, our passage in Mark 10 has Jesus squarely on the road to Jerusalem. He's not that far off. He's on the road. He's headed there. And it's that fact, actually, that Jesus, right now, he's on the road to Jerusalem where he will die for the sins of many. That makes our passage all the more outrageous. Because on the one hand, we, we observe Jesus so selflessly committed to dying for others. But on the other hand, we have the disciples who are so selfishly committed to try and get as much as they can before, before the time's up. To try and negotiate for what they can get out of, out of this equation. Jesus aims to give. The disciples aim to take. Jesus seeks God's will. The disciples are after their own will. Jesus comes to serve. The disciples come to be served. And there's a real contrast here. It's night and day between Christ and the disciples, the shepherd and the sheep. And much is to be learned from this contrast, even regarding our own discipleship. Before you sit and pass judgment on the disciples, you need to first stop and ask, well, just how much like them are you? Are we that different? And what can we learn about our own discipleship, what it means to follow Christ from, from them and even from their blunders, from their mistakes? The answer to that question is a whole lot. And today we're going to try and uncover as much as we can. The text before us is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 40. And our goal this morning, it's, it's simple, is to paint this contrast between Jesus and the disciples. This contrast between the selfless son of man and specifically the selfish sons of Zebedee. And we want to learn more about what it means to truly follow Jesus. So that's what we're after, just painting the contrast between the selfless son of man and the selfish sons of Zebedee, so that we may learn more about what it means to follow him, to be his disciple. And we'll read as we go, but let's start with this. Number one, it's simple. The selfless son of man. Before we see James and John, we see Christ in action. He's on this road. So let's start reading verse 32. The selfless son of man. Verse 32. It says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Now stop there for a moment. We get the setting here, some of the background. 
The last we saw, Jesus, he was on the east of the Jordan River, to the east, making his way west toward Jerusalem. Pretty soon he's going to cross the Jordan. He'll stop in Jericho for, for a little bit, and then he, he's really off to Jerusalem. It's the end of the line. But right now he's on the road heading west. And as a side note, you'll see in verse 32 it says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And that's true. That's because Jerusalem was on a high point. So no matter where you approached from, every road went up to Jerusalem. And from Jericho, they've got about a 3,500 feet climb in front of them to get up to Jerusalem. So that's it's a good, good little hike. Anyway, on this road, Jesus is accompanied by his 12 disciples. They're still following him. They're still matching his every step. We also learned about some other followers here. Verse 32 appears to make a distinction between the 12 disciples and some others who were following him on the road. And we know Jesus had many disciples. And at the same time, many Jews were making their way to Jerusalem at this time for the Passover. So naturally, though, many gathered around Jesus for this journey. But what's more interesting is to see the reactions of these followers on the way. And regarding the 12, verse 32 says, first, they were amazed. They were amazed. Now, what's so amazing? Why were they amazed just watching Jesus walk on a dirt road? Well, verse 32 doesn't say too much, but we gather they must have been amazed by the determination of Jesus. He's already told them a couple times why he's going to Jerusalem, namely to die. And they, they weren't that happy about that. In fact, the first time Jesus told them, Peter tried to stop Jesus. But far from being, being stopped, Jesus is still resolutely heading toward his death. And we can only imagine the look in his eyes, the expression on his face, but they gathered, there's no stopping him. There's just no stopping him right now. Far from dragging his feet or trying to run and hide, Jesus was out in front. He was leading the way, leading this charge to Jerusalem. And, and that is pretty amazing. Long ago, he set his face like flint, Scripture says, to go to Jerusalem, to, to bear this weight, to die. And he intends on seeing this through. So for Jesus, this isn't a trip. This is it's like a death march. He's on a death march to Jerusalem, and he knows it. Now, I'm sure if you and I had to go on a death march, we would be dragging our feet. I'm sure there would be no pep in your step. That you'd be taking your time, you know, smelling the roses, trying to, to be as slow as possible. Certainly, you wouldn't be determined to, to get there fast. It's like in old Western movies. There's always that one scene where some guy, good or bad, he's forced at gunpoint to dig his own grave. You know, we've all seen those scenes. And just here's a simple question. If that were you, how fast would you dig? Probably not that fast. You'd probably take your sweet time. And I'm sure there would be not a lot of zeal in your shovels. You'd just be just trying to take as long as possible. But see, that's the opposite of Jesus right here. He, he knows that enduring the cross is the only way to save his people, his sheep. And so like a good shepherd, he's going out in front. He's leading the way. He's taking this charge. He will even go as far as to lay down his life for the sheep. And that is amazing. So first it says the disciples were amazed. But also it's, it's a little scary. Seeing Jesus like this was fearful. And that's the reaction attributed to the other followers. 
It seems that everyone could tell, maybe just by the look on his face, that, that it's serious. This is getting serious. This is getting real. It's not just talk anymore. This, this talk of suffering and dying in Jerusalem, it, it's like it's about to happen. It's like things are getting serious. It's like with first-time parents. You spend nine months talking about what it's going to be like to have a, a child. But uh, that all goes out the window when you're driving to the hospital after her water breaks. Because it's real. It's not just talk anymore. The time for talk is over. It's getting real. And now it's time for action. And that's probably what these disciples were feeling. The atmosphere was tense. Already there were several foreboding signs about this trip to Jerusalem, meaning that it wasn't going to go well. It's not in the Gospel of Mark, but it's in John, that right before this, not long before this, what happened? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That has already happened. And that's recorded in John chapter 11. And and do you remember, how did the people respond to that miracle? Well, John 11.45 says that many Jews came to believe in Jesus because of that. Rightly so. But a few others, they ran off and they went and they told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. And so they had gathered together with all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they, they, they met to figure out, what are we going to do with Jesus? He's getting more and more followers. What do we do? And John 11.53 says that from that day on, they planned together to kill him. It's like, that's it. They signed his death warrant. And Jesus knew it. It wasn't a secret. And so verse 54 says, Jesus no longer walked publicly among the Jews because he feared for his life, but his time had not yet come. This wasn't secret information. Many people knew what the religious leaders thought about Jesus, what they wanted to do to him. So just put yourself in these shoes. Jesus, he's out in front. He's walking. You're with a larger group right behind him. He's headed to Jerusalem. You know that all the religious leaders in Jerusalem hate Jesus and they want him to die. So what does that mean for you who's following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem? That's not boding too well for you. You don't want to be too close to Jesus when this all goes down. It's like falling behind a presidential motorcade. In one sense, it's, it's kind of you know, amazing seeing the, the display of power, but in another sense, it's fearful because if something goes wrong, if there's an attack, you're probably going to catch some of that heat. So I trust you get the drift. The point is, these were serious times. The tension around Jesus was so thick, you could cut it with a knife, as the expression goes. The reality of the cross was already starting to weigh on his soul, so much so that by the time they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's just in a spiritual anguish over what's going to happen. And now, before he gets there, he wants to make sure his disciples, they're fully prepared for what's going to happen. So he warns them. He shows them or tells them what's going on. So verse 32 continues, and it says, And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This is actually the third time Jesus is announcing his death to the disciples. He pulls the twelve aside, his special group, because he wants them specifically to know, to be prepared, to be aware. And, and what is it? What's going to happen? Well, verse 33. He told them, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And notice he says, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him 
and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, we've heard some of this before from those first two predictions in Mark. Jesus, he's already warned them that the leaders of Israel would turn on him and capture him, put him to death. He's also already told them that after three days he would rise again. So he's already dropped those bombshells on the disciples. that They didn't really understand it, but he's already told them these things. And by now, they had come to know and confess Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the Son of Man. But they still weren't getting it because they didn't have a category for a rejected Messiah. How could the Messiah be rejected by the, the spiritual leaders? He's supposed to be accepted by them and embraced. How will they reject him and even kill him? And that being said, they really didn't have a category for a dead Messiah. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Messiah is supposed to come. He's supposed to be this conquering king, delivering Israel. I mean, how can he be executed? That, that doesn't make any sense. And then all this business about rising after three days, they definitely didn't understand what that was all about. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, the parallel, it says that they just these words almost went in one ear out the other. They just didn't understand what he was saying to them. And for the third time, they're, they're shocked, they're bewildered, they're confused about the impending death of Jesus. But in this third pronouncement, things get even worse because here Jesus adds a few new details that, that make his death even more shocking. So he tells them for the first time that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And that's just about the worst thing that could happen to any Jew, especially the Jewish Messiah. He's going to be handed over to the filthy Gentiles. Are you kidding me? It's just that that can't be. The Christ, he's supposed to conquer the Gentiles and free Israel. But now Jesus is saying he's going to suffer at their hands. The Gentiles, that, that doesn't make sense to the disciples. Now to us, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense because the Jews under Roman occupation, they didn't have the authority to carry out the death penalty. So if Jesus was really going to die and if he was going to die on a cross, the Romans had to get involved somehow. This is all just going to God's plan. But the disciples, they don't know that yet. They just, they, they, don't, they don't get it. And in addition, we learn for the first time ever here that the Gentiles, how will they treat Jesus? What will happen before he's executed? It says they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and then kill him. In a word, it's just shameful. The death of the Messiah, it's not even like a blaze of glory. It's just a shameful, pitiful death. It makes you wonder why. Why is Jesus doing this? If he really is the Son of Man and the Son of God, why is he putting himself through this? Why is he putting up with this? I think John 10 sums it up best, which I alluded to earlier, where Jesus himself says, John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why he's doing this. This is the selfless son of man. He did not die for himself. He did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. Everything he was about to endure in Jerusalem was going to be on behalf of his sheep. And that's why he did it. All that said, the disciples, they still, they still don't get it. Everything Jesus predicts here fully comes to pass, but they won't, 
it's not all going to fall into place in their minds until after the resurrection takes place. They're still still confused. They're still not getting it. And what happens next is like case in point, that they just don't get it. Because right on the heels of Jesus announcing his selfless mission of suffering, a pair of his disciples, they come up to him selfishly vying for the top spot. They just want, they want glory for themselves. Jesus is so focused right now on serving, giving his life. But here come two disciples and they just want to be served. They want stuff for themselves. They want glory for themselves. And again, I mentioned that contrast. It's real and it's impactful. And so let's build this contrast now by looking at, secondly, the selfish sons of Zebedee. From the selfless son of man to, secondly here, the selfish sons of Zebedee. Now, I don't know what the deal is, but every time Jesus announces his coming death, the disciples, they follow it up every time by by saying something stupid or doing something dumb. It's like back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus, he announced for the very first time, right after they confess him as the Messiah, that he's going to die. And so what does Peter do? Takes him aside, tries to rebuke him. Then secondly, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus announces again, that he's going to die. And immediately, what do we see the disciples do? <clears throat> They're arguing among themselves as to which one of them is the greatest. It's like, wait, what? Did you just hear what he said? And how, how could you be talking about that at a time like this? And now after this third passion prediction, we find two disciples, James and John. They come up to Jesus. They open their mouths. And as you can expect, nothing good comes out. So let's continue now in verse 35. So right after this announcement, we're, we're still on the road to Jerusalem. Now sometime later it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now stop there. Look, if anyone ever comes up to you and they ask you for a blank check before telling you what they're going to do with it, you probably should say no. You, you know there's going to be trouble. It's like when someone comes up to you and says, hey, I've got something to tell you, but promise you won't get mad. It's like you're about to get mad. You know what they're going to say is bad. And so the fact that they wanted Christ to give his blind assurance beforehand, it means they themselves already know that what they're about to ask is kind of out of line. So they're trying to make him seal the deal before he even knows what they're talking about. But Jesus doesn't play that game. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't turn them down, but he's also not making any blind promises. And you never want to bind yourself to someone in advance because you just might get stuck having to fulfill a foolish request. And thankfully, Jesus didn't say yes beforehand because they indeed have an outrageous request. Verse 37, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Okay, that, that's asking a lot. Uh, it's safe to say that's, that's asking a lot. We might expect them to ask Jesus something simple, like, hey, Jesus, could you turn a little more water into wine or could you heal my backache? But these brothers, they're going straight to the top. They, they want it all. They want kingdom glory. And just to be clear, what exactly are they asking? 
Well, they're asking to be the supreme rulers in the kingdom of God just under Jesus. Of course, of course, Jesus, he's number one. He's the top guy. Yeah, they get that. He's going to sit on the throne, but they want to be number two and number three. They want to be second in command and third in command. In an ancient royal court, the king, his most trusted advisor or governor, would sit on his right, another one on the left. These were the top positions of prestige and honor, and that's what they want. If Jesus is the president in the kingdom, they want to be vice president and secretary of state. I mean, they want to be the top guys. Now, this is an audacious request, especially given what Jesus just said about what he's going to do. But before we rail on James and John too much, there are a few reasons to commend them here. At the very least, they certainly believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's good. I mean, they really believe. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe that somehow he's going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, despite all this talk about dying. And that's good. So there's a level of real faith behind this request. And you have to remember, James and John both witnessed Christ in his transfigured glory. So they had a little preview of kingdom glory. Now, they didn't have the order of events right. They still weren't getting what was going to happen with his death. But they did, in faith, believe the kingdom was coming. And that's a good thing. You also have to remember, Jesus, he already made a promise to the twelve that in the kingdom, they would be given twelve thrones, they would sit on twelve thrones, and they would judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's not totally wrong for James and John to have some anticipation of this coming kingdom, of ruling with Christ. It's just that now they want the top seats, and they don't mind stepping on the necks of the disciples, the other ones, to get it. Now, I guess this is to be expected from James and John. I mean, they're not called the sons of thunder for nothing. They're a little, they're like this. The two of them are already in Christ's inner circle, and they just want to seal the deal. They just want to make sure they stay in the inner circle, and they're on top when the kingdom comes. And furthermore, we learn this was a family affair. The parallel passage in Matthew 20, we learn actually that the mother of James and John was behind this whole thing. She's the first one who came up to Jesus and asked on behalf of her sons to get these positions of glory. And they were there, they were asking too, but she started this. Like any good mother, she just wants the best for her children in that coming kingdom. And you might wonder, like, what's she even doing there? Why is the mother of James and John approaching Jesus and making such a request? Well, we don't have time to really take this in detail, but when you compare certain passages like Matthew 27, verse 56, Mark 15, verse 40, John 19, verse 25, you learn that the mother of James and John was the aunt of Jesus, which means that James and John were cousins of Jesus. Now, that's something we can't be 100% dogmatic on because there's a chance, you know, it may not be the case. You just compare those passages. We'll, We'll talk about that some other day. But if it is the case, it would certainly explain why James and John and their mother feel able to make such a bold request of Jesus. It's like, hey, Jesus, just keep it in the family. Just take your cousins, put them on top, if that is indeed the case. So anyway, on the one hand, we can, we can sort of commend James and John for the faith that is behind their request. But ultimately, on the other hand, we cannot approve because this request betrays 
a self-seeking, self-serving, self-centered, selfish heart. The disciples had earlier argued among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. And that argument hadn't been settled. James and John now, they're secretly trying to settle it with themselves getting the favor. They want to be the greatest. They want the honor, the glory for themselves. They want the power. They want the status. When Jesus ushers in the new age, they want the top benefits. And they want this above and, and beyond the other disciples. They don't, it doesn't matter if they have to step over the, others, the other disciples to get this. They're not really concerned about God's will, but their own. They're not trying to seek God's greater glory, but their own. They're trying to bend God through Jesus to their own will, and their only concern here is just for themselves. It's, at the end of the day, it's a selfish request. They're just concerned about themselves. And again, the contrast is striking. Jesus is boldly leading the way to his own sacrificial death where he's going to suffer immensely on behalf of others. Meanwhile, the disciples are following behind and they're still arguing about the seating chart in the kingdom. But if they only understood that the cross comes before the crown, they may not have been so quick to volunteer for the top seats because there's a cost associated with the best seats in the kingdom. The best seats always come with a price. Verse 38, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus really nailed it here when he said, You do not know what you are asking. It's like, guys, you're not even in the ballpark. Don't you know there's a cost associated with this kingdom glory? And that cost is high. And we've seen this principle emerge several times that the cross must come before the crown. Suffering must precede glory. So it's true for Jesus. It's true for all of his disciples. But the disciples, they're still not understanding the plan here. They've always thought of the Messiah as this conquering king figure. He's going to usher in the kingdom with power and with glory. And that's true. Only that's in regard to Christ's second coming. But first, though, Jesus came as the suffering servant. And that is the path that all of his disciples must take if they are to follow him into the kingdom. But these disciples, they don't get it yet. And so as Jesus announces his coming suffering, they they don't care. They just want a shortcut to glory. Just give us a shortcut to glory. Specifically, what does he ask him? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And here he gives them two metaphors for suffering, the cup and the baptism. The cup was a very common Old Testament metaphor, just talking about taking in something to the full, good or bad. So there's the cup of God's blessing, which he pours out on Israel sometimes. But then most of the time we learn about the cup of God's wrath, which he also pours out on the wicked, the disobedient. This is the cup of judgment. This is the cup of death. And this is the cup that Jesus is talking about. It's the cup of suffering. And that the metaphor of baptism builds on this. This is not talking about the Christian practice of water baptism. The word baptizo just means to immerse, to submerge something. So this is talking about being fully submerged in suffering. 
Jesus himself will be plunged into suffering on the cross. He's not going to be sprinkled with a little suffering. He's going to be flooded with suffering. It will be so great that it will take his life. And that's it. The price that Jesus must pay to save his sheep is his own life. He has to drink the cup to the full. This is the penalty for sins, and he's going to pay it to satisfy the wrath of God that we may go free. So basically, though, Jesus, he's asking James and John, are you ready to pay that price? Are you ready to give your lives for this kingdom glory? Are you ready to die? Even at that, though, there's a, there's a whole added dimension to the cup and the baptism that Jesus is talking about that James and John can't even get close to handling. James and John, they can suffer and they can die, but they can't suffer and die on behalf of others. They can't produce atonement for others. They can't even drink their own cup of God's wrath, let alone the cups of the world. But Jesus, he's going to satisfy God's righteous judgment due the sins of his sheep on the cross. That's something James and John could not do. So when you look at it from that angle, this whole question becomes ridiculous. When Jesus says, hey, guys, are you able to drink this cup and to to undergo this baptism? Can you do this? And we know the answer to that is not even close. They can't drink his cup or share his baptism. They can't suffer for sins. It's not possible. Jesus will ascend to his throne of supreme glory because of his work of supreme redemption, but they can't even drink their own cup of wrath, let alone that for others. So we know the answer to the questions. Like, there's, there's no way they're able to do this. But that's news to them because they still don't get it. And so verse 39, what's their response? They said to him, we are able. Yeah, we can do that. And clearly they still weren't getting it. And again, part of you has to commend James and John. They're determined. They're loyal. They're seemingly willing to pay the price. But they're still so ignorant, so foolish If they only knew what Jesus was talking about, they would not be so quick to ask. But their spiritual pride has taken over. In reality, they would flee and abandon Jesus at the first sign of trouble, and that's what they did. When he got arrested, James and John were out of there. And they're just so far away from who Jesus is and what he's really going to do. But thankfully, the good shepherd is also a gentle shepherd. And you really can't get too mad at James and John because they, they don't know better, right? They just don't know better. It's like the other day I was moving a really heavy bed frame into Olivia's room and she comes running up. She wants to help carry. And in my mind, I laugh like, really? I mean, seriously, you, you can't even carry the cardboard box the thing's in. But what? you can't get mad. They don't know better. They're just, you know, just, they just don't know better. And these brothers, they don't need a harsh rebuke. They're not being rebellious here. They just, they just don't know better. They're misguided, and now Jesus fills them in. And so finishing up at verse 39, Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So you see, this is why it's dangerous to go to Jesus with these types of requests because you just might get more than you bargained for. You just might bite off more than you can chew. James and John went up to Jesus looking for a shortcut to glory 
And instead, they walked away with the promise of great suffering. Great suffering. Jesus promises them a share in his cup and baptism. Now, of course, there's a major difference because as they would suffer, they wouldn't suffer on behalf of the world. Their cup and their baptism would not produce atonement for sins. But as Jesus suffered for them, in return, in a real sense, they would suffer for him, for his sake, for being his followers. They would know a measure of his suffering. And more specifically here, verse 39 can be taken as a prediction of the martyrdom of James and John. They would come to know what it means to suffer for the sake of Jesus, and they would know what it's like to drink the cup unto death. And they both would. James was the first of the apostles to die for Jesus. John was the last of the apostles to die for Jesus. And though exiled, he still died for Jesus. And they both learned what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. They, they, were, they would learn the lesson. The cross comes before the crown. It's actually not wrong to desire kingdom glory, but there's a price. And they will learn to, learn to pay. Jesus had to endure suffering and shame before his great exaltation. Same is true for us. But Jesus promises that all those who identify with him in his suffering will be with him in his glory. And this is not something Jesus just teaches. He leads the way. He's the first to go to death in obedience to the Father's will. But what happened to their initial request? What happened to their request for the the corner office in the kingdom to sit on his right hand and on his left? Well, Jesus says it's not for him to give. It's not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. In Matthew 20, 23 adds, prepared by God the Father. This is God the Father. Jesus is saying that God the Father has already settled who's going to sit at his right hand and left. It's already been determined. God the Father has chosen his own before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And although Jesus is God the Son in his incarnation, he, he is beautifully displaying his own submission to the will of God. He just submits that it's God's will. It's for him to decide, and he's modeling that for us. And truly, Jesus did not come seeking his own will. He came seeking the will of the Father. Wherever God the Father led, that's where he would go. That's all he was about. He didn't want to, and he didn't do anything that was out of line with God's will. And he expects the same of his disciples. That's, That's largely what it means to be his disciple. And Christ displayed his submission to the will of God nowhere more beautifully and amazingly than in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the garden, Jesus, he's there and he's in anguish. Over what? Over the cup, the cup of God's wrath, which he knows he's going to have to drink. And what does he pray? Mark 14, verse 36. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Now, we'll we'll deal with that passage when we get to it in Mark. But just you see Jesus, he's just in submission to the Father no matter what. And that helps bring our passage into sharper focus. What's this all about? What's their problem for James and John? The problem is their will, meaning they're only concerned about their will. 
They're concerned about their will be done on earth as opposed to God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I trust that you know this. Fallen, sinful man is selfish, lives for self, loves self, praises self, worships self. It's a great idolatry for all sinners. Only God is worthy of such worship, yet we are so busy worshiping ourselves. When you come to salvation in Christ by faith, though, this idolatry can be corrected, and you become a true worshiper of God, and that's good. But even believers at times can fall into the trap of trying to bend God to their will. How often are you like James and John? You approach God, you ask Him to do your will, as opposed to praying and trust, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the circumstances may differ, the request may differ, but disciples today, they're often not that different from James and John. They're still trying to serve themselves. It's all about their will being done. That's what matters. That's what they care about. This passage provides such an important reminder that discipleship, it's not about you. It's not about your will being done. It's about God. It's about his will being done. When you sign up to follow Jesus, so to speak, you are giving up following yourself, your own heart's desires. That's what got you into trouble in the first place, following your sinful heart's desires. But Jesus saves you from your sins, and instead he says, first, deny yourself. Second, pick up your cross. Then, follow me. When you really do that, when you really do that, it changes everything. As a disciple, you're not seeking your own glory anymore, but that of the Father. You're not living for yourself anymore, but for God and his purposes. You want to know God, to serve him, to obey him, to enjoy him. That's what your life is about. You're concerned with his plan and his will for your life. And you humbly submit to whatever that is, even if it includes suffering. You submit to God's will. But again, we are all too quick to forget this and just bring the focus back on ourselves. We, we think too often, what can we get out of following Jesus? How, how can we get our best lives? And so too often we pray and we bombard God with demand after demand. Hey God, I want you to do this for me and then I'd like you to do this and then can you do this and then when you're done with that, can you do this for me? If you find that yourself and your needs are at the center of your prayer life, then we're talking about you. This is you. You're, you're not that different from James and John. But instead, your focus should be on God and others. People who lose sight of, of their focus on God, they're the ones who are often quick to get angry at God. Since their Christian world revolves around themselves, when things don't go their way, well, God is to blame. God, how dare you not give me what I want? How dare you let me lose my job? How dare you not heal me of this disease? How dare you let my loved one die? How, how dare you not do my will? You forget God's will, you just want your will to be done. Look, does this mean it's wrong for us to bring our requests before God? Absolutely not. We are told to bring our requests before God. But we ask with open hands. We seek his will and we submit to his will, whatever it is, with a happy heart. 
It's like Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's like Jesus himself said. Just go ahead. Let your heart's desire be made known to God. But then you add, truly from the heart, you say, Lord, but not my will be done, but yours. And isn't that the prayer that Jesus modeled for us? Lord, if this desire of mine is, is not in line with yours, let's forget it. I want your will to be done. But let your heart's request be made known. He'll guide you. Look, there's no blank check promise here that your wish is God's command. Rather, you take your requests, you humbly lay them at God's feet, you pray His will be done, and God will give you His peace, He promises, even if the answer to your prayer is no. It's not wrong to desire a blessed life, to pray for a blessed life. That's good. But more importantly, we desire and we pray for God's will to be done even if sometimes that includes suffering in our discipleship, in our lives. God's will be done. This is the path of true discipleship. Jesus doesn't just talk about it. He went there first. He went there first in the cross. Following Jesus is not about getting your own desires met. It's not about getting rich. It's not about living a long life. It's not about even avoiding calamity. Rather, following Jesus is all about becoming like Jesus, being conformed to his image. And this includes his desires. He came in happy submission to the will of God, whatever that was, even sometimes suffering. And we need to let that be our chief desire as well. So don't worry about yourself. God will take care of you. He will take care of your needs. If you follow Christ, He will bless you and he's going to bring you into glory. So you actually have nothing to worry about. You will be blessed. But in this walk of discipleship, he tells you, set your sights on the Lord. Set your sights on others. Serve him. Serve others. And in this, you will become most like Christ. And in this, you will most please the God who saved you. And let this be our aim. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we we do indeed thank you for your graciousness with us. Because all too often, we're we're no different than James and John and Peter and the other disciples. We still have our our sin to deal with that so often we, we fall short. But we thank you for dealing graciously with us, knowing we are all imperfect disciples. But we thank you for accepting us, not on the basis of our perfection, because then none would be accepted, but simply on the basis of of our faith which even that comes by your grace. So we thank you. And we do place our faith in you. And we aspire towards a greater discipleship. We aim to follow Christ, our Savior, whichever way he would lead us, as you make clear in your word. And Lord, we just pray now your will be done. We, we desire glory. We desire the kingdom to come. That is not wrong. But we just we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We each have lives to live before the next life. And that can entail many different things. May we be seeking your will through scripture as you speak so clearly, doing what you call us to do, and being content with with whatever comes. We, We trust you, we accept it, and we pray your will be done. In this you are glorified, and that's what we're after. We want to bring you honor and recognition that you deserve for the God who created us and the God who saved us, sending your son to die for us in the greatest penalty. We thank you for that, and we lift up our entire lives to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.